Hello, welcome to the Future of Film podcast. My name is Alex Stoltz, and this is a show where we share insights and strategies from the trailblazers who are shaping the future of film. Today's episode is a very special one because we are hosting another podcast. The Movie Marketing and Distribution podcast is a new show which I've launched with my colleagues at Usheru. It does what it says on the tin. It's purely focused on movie marketing, content marketing, that intersection between movies, films, content, and audiences, and how distribution in particular is changing in this very exciting and transformative moment in the industry. This episode is particularly interesting, and I wanted to share it here. It's with Kevin Getz who is a movie researcher. Uh, he is named, or is nicknamed, the uh, the Doctor of Audienceology, and he's got a book coming out with that title. It is really, has so many insights and lessons into, as Kevin says, learning from the crowd when we are creating content. So I share it here. If you're particularly interested in this podcast, please do check it out movie marketing and distribution podcast you can find it on all your usual podcast platforms and players and i look forward to seeing you back here at the future of film podcast very soon so thanks for listening and i hope you enjoy this episode of the movie marketing and distribution podcast with kevin getz kevin welcome to the show Thank you, Alex. It's really nice to be here. Thank you so much. Um, and, and firstly, congratulations on the book. I I personally loved it uh, as a as someone who's passionate about audiences and the the creative process. It felt like it was it was very much <laughs> I, I was your, your your core audience for that. But I I, I absolutely loved it. Highly recommended it. Thank you so much. That's really yeah. that's really nice of you, Alex. I appreciate you endorsing it. It's uh, it's certainly an inside view, isn't it? And also a, uh, a an area of the industry that not a lot of people, even film aficionados, know about. Yeah, exactly. It really opens the opens the lid on this process, and I guess because it's so, it happens in these movie theaters, doesn't it? Where it's 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 very um, selective, and it's it, and people don't have access to that and access to that process. What at what point did you think this is going to be going to be a book? Well, the book originally started as a textbook, and the reason I was writing it was because I teach at many of the film schools around the United States as a guest lecturer in the area of. Uh, of marketing and research in, in particular. And I wanted to have actually a, a piece of uh, collateral material that I could leave behind and, and give the students to uh, more specifically and, and in a more detailed way, express and explain what I do and the process of screening early, you know, test or test movies before they actually come out. And then it wasn't until about three or four years into that where I was having lunch with Sherry Lansing, who is the 
ex-Paramount chief and producer extraordinaire and really one of the most extraordinary women that I've ever had the pleasure of working with and happy to call her a friend now, said to me, you know, honey, I think this is more than a textbook. I really feel this has nuances and understanding about consumers that would be really interesting to more than just film students. And so I went back to my co-author, Darlene Heyman, and we sat and talked about it. And we decided to make a really strong pivot into a movie book that was more for the movie lover, uh, not necessarily the movie maker. And it turned out, I think, rather well, because there's so many entertaining stories that if you have a love for movies, to know that audience feedback created a lot of these changes, or certainly was the impetus for a lot of these um, you know, small and some large changes in the movies that that we've seen um, is really acknowledging to the to pe- we, the people in the dark, as uh, Norma Desmond says in Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, it certainly does that, and there are some fantastic stories on about some of the classic movies, movies which we 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 really know very well, but they could have been potentially so different, or the results could have been very different. Tell me, perhaps, could, could you share one of those which you, you was perhaps most surprising or you think is most instructive? Oh, Lord. Well, having worked on over 7,000 titles, uh, I can tell you that uh, 6,900 uh, 6, probably 6,900 and some odd number, I don't even think it's even a hundred of those, went through some change that prompted or aided in its success. Sometimes it didn't aid in its success, but it, um, it, it, it certainly didn't hurt what was already there. It just probably helped realize the filmmaker's vision even further. So it's really tough. I mean, uh, the book is chock full of um, examples of small, small little things versus large things. I mean, one of the small things, for example, is I talk about Moonstruck, uh, the, the the movie with um, with Cher um, and Nicolas Cage, and directed by Norm Jewison, which was a really fun movie, and really it was a comedy, kind of a romantic comedy in a way. And uh, very funny from the outset, except at the first test screening, people didn't really laugh until the middle of the movie. Like it took them a long time to maybe it was a little before the before the middle, but it was it was not at the outset. And that concerned the filmmakers. And we were doing two tests, one in New York City and one in Paramus, New Jersey, which was only less than an hour away uh, the next night. And so the first night we get scores back, you know, rating scores back from the audience and they were average to very good, but the movie was very good to great. And it was like, why are they not embracing it more? And so the editor at the postmortem after at dinner time, after the, um, after the screening said, you know, we're opening the movie in a very serious way. They had an uh, Italian sort of opera aria that was, you know, very um, 
serious and uh, and but beautiful, but you know that and it wasn't um, a clue for the audience to know that they had permission to laugh. So they changed it for the next screening the next night to that's amore. You know, when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. And it changed immediately the trajectory of the movie. And the audience knew from the get go, oh, I can laugh here. And because of that, the scores went up like 20 points. The entire experience, because they didn't have to play catch up or recovery or anything, was a far more entertaining one. And that little change made such a big difference. Uh, Another movie that comes to mind, which was, I think, a small little change, but was very, very um, impactful, for example, is um, a movie called Hope Floats. And that was with Sandra Bullock and uh, Forrest Whitaker directed it. And the great Jenna Rollins played Sandra Bullock's mother. And in the movie, uh, Sandra Bullock's character comes back to live with her mother and I think then falls in love with like... um, um oh um oh uh, what's his name oh my god um the uh, singer um the jazz singer who's Harry Connick um, Jr. I'm Harry just... Connick Jr. Yes. Yeah Harry Connick Jr. wonderful 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 and uh so so they like her character but then what happens is um her mother passes away her mother dies and Sandra Bullock goes on with her life seemingly as if nothing happened, at least the audience perceived it that way. And so when the scores and the comment cards came back afterwards, they weren't completely embraceive of her character. And they're like, well, what's going on? She's Sandra Bullock. She's one of the most likable actresses and, and, and stars. Uh, but they felt that she was sort of selfish, that she didn't take the time to grieve her mother. Now, cut to, it's months later, she's, Sandy's on to her next movie. Uh, she's changed her hair, cut her hair color, I think, both for the new part, what to do. So we all sat down and sort of said, what can, what can we do here? And, and it was de- de- devised to have her, you know how women wear the, the, the towel when they come out of the shower around their head to, uh, so it doesn't, you know, it dries and, so I don't know how they do that rap, but uh, she um, she comes out of her bathroom into straight into her mother's room as if by rote and forgets almost her mother's not there. And she goes into her mother's closet to borrow some piece of clothing, which is something that, again, you, we bought that this happened time and time again. She picks up a piece of a garment. She smells it and realizes her mother's gone and realizes that oh my God, this is real. And she has a moment where she cries and writhes down the wall in a ball of tears and the scores come up 20 points. Her character rating comes up 25 points because suddenly that little bit of humanity, that little bit of humanness, that little bit of compassion and grieving changed the whole arc of her character. So the audience told us And so they didn't tell us how to fix it, but in fact, they told us what the problem was. And I thought that was extremely uh, interesting. And 
uh, an example of, again, a tiny change, even solving the hair issue and then uh, having a great result. Yeah, it's, it's it's fascinating. It's often it comes across it. What what comes across in the book is often it's it's very subtle. There's feedback from the audience, and then then there's this creativity which comes from the the filmmaking team to solve it and to whether that's um, Spielberg reshooting the uh, the scene in Jaws where um, the head um, floats out of the the ship in 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 Verna Fields pool. By the way. <laughs> They went to her pool because, you know, they didn't they had to do it quickly and they just put milk in the pool to create the cloudiness of the water and they were able to match the shot. Legendary. Love it. Um, so, I mean, it's really fascinating. I suppose um, I mean, this might sound a, a trite question of having just, you know, had those examples. But why why is testing so important, Kevin? Well, I think I just expressed to you that um, that it certainly brings up issues that only the wisdom of crowds can sort of identify. But why it's important from a business standpoint is there is an absolute correlation between the word of mouth. And when I say the word of mouth, I mean the the definite recommend scores. We ask a series of questions about, would you recommend the movie to a family or friend, mem- member of your family or, or a friend? Yeah, can you, can you dig into the, the scores the, scores a little bit? Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, yeah I will, I will. To, let, yeah. let me just um, say that the that particular highest box, the top box, definite recommend, is, is the most important barometer of if a movie is going to have longevity legs, if you will, we call it legs, uh, in the movie theaters. Now, of course, a lot of that's changing with streaming, but it still doesn't change the, the uh, veracity or what's the, the word, the, the uh, intensity of what that measurement means. I mean, definite recommend is not probably recommend. If you're probably going to recommend it, you're probably not going to in the real world. So we only look at definitely. Even in the last 10 years, we look beyond definite. We look at passion and advocacy scores to see how definite <laughs> you are. And are you going to be an advocate or you know, an evangelist for this movie? So if you understand that definite recommend is that important, you know that that score is what we call the money score often. And that score, if it is at the norm, the normative level, let's say, average, uh, you're looking at potentially a, a multiple um, that might only be two and a half times its opening or three times its opening. I'm talking about a wide release. So if a movie opens at 10 million and it does a two and a half times multiple, it's going to do $25 million US I'm talking about right now in its, in its uh, domestic life. If a movie opens to a 3.5 multiple, it'll do 35 million. Well, if you have an average definite recommend score, typically, and this is not every movie, but but many, many movies, and uh, that's why we have this, this data, you'll be in a certain multiple. But if you have, are 10 points above the norm or 20 points above the norm in that definite recommend, you could see a multiple of three and a half, four, five times the opening because people are going to be talking about it. And the other way is if you're 10 points below the norm 
or 20 points below the norm, you might be looking at a two times multiple. Now, think about the difference financially of what that means. So if you have a movie that opens in the US to $20 million, but it has the potential to open to $40 million, you understand that there's tens of millions of dollars of difference if the word of mouth is, is there, right? Um, does that make sense? So it's important to have a very strong number there. And the excellent and very good, which is how we rate it, we rate, you asked about ratings, we rate a movie, almost every movie, almost since the history uh, of, of being measured nearly 100 years ago, they used to ask, um, is the movie excellent, very good, uh, good or bad or something? Now they, we ask excellent, very good, good, fair or poor. And if a movie is excellent, almost everyone who rates a movie excellent is, is saying they're definitely going to recommend it. And only half of those who say very good are going to definitely recommend it almost on every movie. But if they're rating it good or fair or poor, they're not definitely recommending it. So that's why it's so important to make changes that get people more excited about the movie because it's going to translate into excellence and very goods, which will translate into definite recommends. And that again is driving the business model, which almost everybody that I know who's in the movie business, not in the movie art, but in the movie business, uh, cares about. We talked there about the change, making changes to increase the score. Uh, we're also interested on this show about marketing and distribution. Have you, are there examples of how um, the marketing has been changed uh, or, or shifted direction based on the the feedback you get. Oh, through. sure. Many, many times. I mean, if a movie is um, sets out to be, let's say, um, a horror movie and the early earliest campaign, maybe they do a teaser trailer a year in advance, um, is horrific. And then you start testing your movie and you realize, hey, guess what? It's not very scary. It really is more of a thriller. And it's more of a psychological thriller at that. Uh, that is not a horror movie. If you sell it as a horror movie, you are going to really upset the audience. Uh, not that I think you have to be completely accurate because it's not the truth in advertising department. It is the marketing department. So you want to do some kind of, you could do some kind of bait and switch to try to get people in the theater, that's usually when a movie is not playing that well and you know it's multiple is not going to be that strong. It almost doesn't matter in a way. Does that make sense? Because you're going to try to take the big cash plays and get as many people as you can. But if you're in for the long haul, it's very hard to deceive people through marketing anymore, mainly because word travels so darn fast. Everything goes so quickly. It's, it's warp speed. So people understand if you have a stinker or if you have a really great movie within hours of the first person seeing it. So uh, it's much more difficult to not be honest out of the gate. So there are movies that, um, for example, comedies, that might be more black comedies or dark comedies. 
uh, and they're sold more mainstream. Uh, and the audience sees them and, you know, they rightfully so the marketing department marketed it more mainstream comedy because to market more as a quirky black comedy really sort of ghettoizes the movie and makes it more in some ways too specific and polarizes the comedy audience. They may say, well, I don't like that kind of comedy. So you want to be as broad as possible to open it up to as many people as possible. So where do they learn this? But in the screenings, they learn what kind of comedy and they learn what kind of suspense thriller and what kind of horror and how to what degree. And so then they also know what scenes and parts really resonate for audiences to use in the creative campaigns. And that's something that's very, very important. Uh, although a trailer is not a movie or a, you know, a 30 second television spot is not a movie. It's, you can often have a challenged movie, but make a very, very compelling two and a two minute trailer because it's, it's, the story can be truncated. It's a very simple story. So it looks much more interesting in the trailer stage. On the other side of that, there's also very complex movies that are very, very difficult, particularly if they have lousy titles. I mean, often, um, you, you know, my feeling is no title lives in a vacuum, like Forrest Gump. You had no idea what that was, right? However, if you have to spend some time, of, any of your real estate in your advertising real estate, explaining a title too much, you don't have a great title. Um, you know, it's, you shouldn't have to work that hard. The exception, of course, are art house films. I'm looking at Moonrise Kingdom behind you in your poster behind, you know, uh, that would be a difficult one to explain, but it's still an appropriate title. You, you know, uh, actually, Forrest Gump turned out not to be such a such a difficult title once you had the visuals and knew that he, his name was Forrest Gump. And that that whole campaign was built around Tom Hanks's character, uh, you, you know, but it's important to um, to to gain as much access as you can at a test screening for the marketing campaign. The other thing that we do that I think your listeners would have um, um, interest in is we believe at Screen Engine ASI, which is is my company. Uh, Screen Engine ASI is a company that's been around for a dozen years. I started it literally in my living room, and then um, we now have 300 employees. And we test not only pre-release movies, but we also test advertising materials ad nauseum. We test, we we do, we conduct tracking surveys on how movies are going to open, exit polls on how they w worked, both in the streaming world, television, and of course movies. And you know, one of the things that I'm a big advocate of is do research early. Do research at what we call the capability stage, which is pre-green light. In order to understand what you have. Now, when they say what you have, it's not just should I make the movie, but it's how much should I spend on the movie? But it also gives you a marketing, early marketing roadmap of because you just use a concept, really. You just use like a two to three hundred word paragraph to identify, is this idea resonating for your audience? And then what we do is we we mine those words and phrases that 
really are exciting to audiences. And we give that to the marketing group at an early stage so that they can create advertising, not in a vacuum, not what one creative editor or producer thinks it should be, but what the audience is actually gravitating towards. Again, this goes back to the whole premise of audienceology. The whole premise of audienceology is to embrace the audience. This notion of wisdom of the crowds that, you know, if somebody, Alex, if somebody hunks at you, you know, on the highway, on the uh, on the roadway and, you know, they're a jerk. But if three, four five people start hunking at you, you know, you're the jerk. And I think it's important for you know, filmmakers to listen to people. If someone says one thing, they could dismiss it as, well, you know, opinions are like, you know what, everyone has one, you know. But if people, 19 people out of a group of 20 focus group members are saying, this is super confusing and I don't get it. And the filmmaker is saying, I don't care. Well, to me, that filmmaker is tone deaf. So, it's important to listen to the audience. I think Ron Howard says it best. You know, Ron is a great filmmaker, Academy Award winner. You know, he, he talks about how he loves the screening process. And I can attest to that because I've worked on, I think, near, if not every, nearly every movie he's ever done. And he's interesting because he'll say, look, I get to choose the script I make. I get to work with the writer and make it just how I want it to be. Then I get to cast it. Then I get to hire the key people around it, the production designer, the costumer, the DP, et cetera. Then I get to shoot it my way. Then I get to edit it through the director's cut with my editor for 10 weeks or whatever it is. And then one day I give it to the audience and that's where the rubber hits the road. And that is where I have to listen because what I set out to communicate may not exactly be what the audience is getting or hearing or understanding. And I need to truly pay attention to realize my vision. And I don't know how, if it could ever be said better than that, because that is to me um, the most important aspect of the, of the art of movie making, the art of it is it's not a painting that you paint and you put away in the back of your closet if you don't like it. It's not a novel that if you write it and you don't like it, you shove it in the back of the drawer. It's, it, it's a process, it's an art form that involves many key people bringing their A-game, hopefully their A-game, to the table to form this piece of art. Now, it is clear that it's either the director and or producer's vision, uh, important to have a vision, but without all those other people, they couldn't make the art. And so who are you making it for? You're making it for the public. And with that comes a responsibility to um, make sure you're giving the people what they want. That doesn't mean you're creating the lowest common denominator that doesn't mean that you're 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 crafting something that is um 
less than, it's actually, in, to me, very liberating and, again, validating to many filmmakers that what you're doing really works or what you're doing isn't communicated as effectively as what you wanted. So we're giving you information. That's all. Whether you want to act on it is your prerogative. But this is what is um, being communicated. Oh, thank you for that. I think it's absolutely fascinating. I love the idea around testing the concept at an early stage. That makes complete sense before before you start spending all the, the big bucks. But, you know, Alex, a lot of people think of that as a quote-unquote project killer. And it might be, but that's not the intention again. The intention is to say, what do you have? Be an adult about it. And don't overpay for something that doesn't have an audience that will ever support it. That's what you're saying. And it just means it's just good business sense. Uh, again, every movie, if made and marketed for the right price, every single solitary movie will make money, should make money, should make money. They should, because if you know what you have, you know, if you make a movie about like dirt, soil, um, it may appeal to only, um, you know, 6,982 Brits, right? That That's it. That's all there, you know, in the whole country. Uh, and there's one website, it's a gardening website. And they're the only ones that are going to, um, <laughs> you know, are going to buy the rights to this in perpetuity. And they're going to pay you 15,000 pounds for it. If you made it for 16,000 pounds, you're going to lose a thousand pounds. You might be proud of yourself. I only made this for 16,000. But if you did your homework, you'd know it doesn't, it, to mitigate your risk, you shouldn't have gone over even that. And so that's what I mean by that. Understanding at the earliest stages what you have, sizing your audience the best you can through comp data, you know, comp other movies that did similarly. I have numbers, so I'm able to look at numbers compared to uh, what they, you know, what they, um, what they actually did, not what they thought they were going to do. Uh, I remember being in Cannes one year and I was uh, doing a, I was doing a, um, a talk back or a, 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 um, some kind of presentation and a filmmaker, young filmmaker came over to me and talked to me about this documentary, uh, actually, sorry, about a full length feature she was making about the life of some very obscure person. And I said, uh-huh, uh-huh. I was very interested in it because I'm interested in obscure things and I said to her, who is this movie for? And what do you think her answer was? Everyone. You got it. You're <laughs> good, Alex. Alex you're, Alex, you're good. <laughs> no, I mean, you are good because people, often people say, well, I don't know, everyone. And I said, really? I can tell you right now that I can think of a dozen people and three would like it and seven would. So clearly, well, it's not a dozen, uh, but... Uh, <laughs> nine, <laughs> nine and three. Sorry, I had to do my math. But uh, I'm like, y y that's not, you can't say that. And then I said, and as a feature, what would you comp this to? So I basically talked her into making a documentary of this person's life. She balked, balked. And I told her the price point and she balked, balked more. Um, I don't think the thing was ever made. And it was a worthy subject but she didn't want to hear the truth. All I'm providing is information. The original title of my book, by the way, Alex, was called Don't Kill the Messenger. <laughs> and uh, Simon & Schuster, the uh, publisher, 
thought that audienceology would be more, I don't know, I guess, um, interesting, uh, brand worthy or less self-aggrandizing perhaps, I don't know, or more, um, more about the audience and less about me. And I tested it. What did I do? I tested, uh, audienceology versus don't kill the messenger. And uh, within the industry, people really like don't kill the messenger just a bit more. But outside of the industry, audienceology seemed to have an intrigue. And so we went with that. Uh, I'm happy I did because it does speak to, again, um, it does speak to uh, who's at the center of all this. And that is the people listening. And it does, it's not to sound cloying or, or patronizing in any way, because one person doesn't necessarily make a difference. But a group of people watching a movie, giving their comments and looking at those commonalities um, make huge differences. Although the, I want to also say there are cer certain circumstances. I remember being in a screening of a movie that was, um, um, you know, a fun romp, but it never quite scored as well as it could ever should have. And I remember it was like the fourth or fifth screening. They had to lock they were just really doing it just to make sure that what they did didn't hurt the movie. And the final um, scene of the movie is they were both um, digging for gold. And at the end, they found the gold. It was a treasure hunt kind of thing. They found the gold. And what they did is they donated it to the local museum, which is the right thing to do. And the audience was never quite satisfied. And it was, again, again the fourth or fifth screening. Uh, it was the end of my focus group. And one woman said, wow, I love that they gave it to the museum. But, you know, I just wish they kept a little for themselves. And so what the audience really wanted was to have them win, too. And so I cut to... Um, 15 years later, I'm working on a movie right now with the exact same issue. And I was able to bring forth that piece of advice from that woman in that focus group. And it's exactly what the studio did. It's a movie that's not out yet that will come out. And I think they did it right. And um, so there's vindication on that front. And But it was one person who made the comment that changed everything. Sometimes that one nugget is all you need to make that big difference. Wow. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. I, I do want to ask, Kevin, where, where, what's the future of testing? Because we're in a rapidly changing entertainment landscape. Um, streaming is the, the norm now. The algorithms that companies like Netflix have to micro target I, right. or to, to, to provide you, you know, to, to, to provide content, which for me, well, the good, well, how does it, how does it work in the streaming landscape? Sure. Well, the good news is, is that content is not going anywhere um, at all. People love content. They can't get enough of it. And movie theater, movie theaters are changing. They're going to um, become much less relevant and really exist for a particular type of movie, uh, an elevated, fun, almost a carnival ride, if you will. That's why the superhero movies do so well, both in their subject matter, uh, so elevated, superhuman, um, 
taking us out of our body, really transporting us. Same in elevated horror movies. They seem to work often as well, like Scream, which opened in the States, you know, this last weekend did rather well, you know, but not Spider-Man well. Uh, but the idea is, is that uh, content will continue in many, many different uh, on many different platforms in many different ways. And people continue to test all of their content. All of the streamers are testing their content smartly. So, because it may not, it may not be there to regulate the legs, but again, the streamers know that they, it's very difficult to discover a new show very difficult to discover a new movie because they don't spend that kind of advertising dollars. And there's just so much con <clears throat> content, excuse me, out there. So they test it because they want to make it as realized and as good as it can be so that the word of mouth again is there, but not for the legs to, to hold in the theater, but for people to talk about it and create conversation around it because it's the most important thing. So there's a business practical uh, practicality, I guess, of testing for that reason. But as I said, from a creative standpoint, um, the smartest filmmakers, the best filmmakers know that it's, it's super, super helpful. Um, there's a movie right now that just um, came out. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. And the filmmaker had never really tested and was reticent to listen to the audience. And there was one particular um, line, a one line that created a context for the picture that the audience was asking for. And the filmmaker was reluctant to do it, reluctant to do it, and finally figured a way to do it without doing it as a line, but changing some of the beginning to allow us to like a moonstruck type of story, right? Like that. And from going to over my dead body to implementing it, it changed the scores 25 to 30 points. And now they're in the Oscar conversation. So, you know, it's important to listen. There's only a handful of filmmakers around the world who will not test their movies or don't test their movies. And perhaps they think it's a badge of honor. And I have to say that having seen a few of those movies with some of those filmmakers, I would say it would have, it would have um, been a good thing had they tested them because I find many things too long, a little too confusing, endings not satisfying um, or as realized as they could be. And I think that's because they're not listening to, uh, to you all. Yeah. Well, look, this is, um, as I say, it's been absolutely fascinating. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Just what what are your plans next, Kevin? What are you continuing to lean into the, the research? and? Yes, for, for... I, I continue to, I'm the CEO of my company, Screen Engine ASI in, uh, in Los Angeles. And of course, um, we have an office in London, um, a company we just acquired called Tapestry. Uh, shout out to, uh, to to Kevin Thompson and and uh, and Ian Wright, uh, who run it, um, old colleagues of mine, and they're spectacular. 
researchers and really try to, what I do is uncover, you know, what are we doing? We're trying to uncover the truth, peel back those uh, layers of the onion, you know, to get to the essence of what, what's really going on. Uh, and uh, so continue to run the company. Um, Simon & Schuster has uh, just offered me a second book, um, which will be titled um, How to Score in Hollywood. And it's a uh, sort of a risk mitigation technique of that early screening stuff we taught, all, all, all that early research we talked about, as well as other things, uh, with told through a lot of people's experiences of green lighting a movie and what does that mean and how did they arrive at it and did they make the right decisions or were they too uh, hasty or were they too uh, ignorant or were they too zealous um, and. Uh, and to examine the notion of every movie, if made and marketed for the right price, should make money. Uh, and then I continue to work in my charitable uh, endeavors. I'm I'm very involved in in uh, in different uh, charitable. I'm on. I sit on five boards. Uh, and then, in, you know, I have a very balanced life. I I play tennis um, and uh, piano and uh, just you know. I'm not this. I realize it's not a dress rehearsal, you know, Alex. I I I actually live my life and enjoy it immensely. Very very blessed. Well, bless you, Kevin. Thank you for for sharing that. And I'm going to take away the the notion: every movie correctly budgeted and and researched can make money. I love it, and I think that's something we should all be pushing too so yeah thanks again for taking the time and i know you said i know you said kevin goetz because i allowed that it's kevin gets oh I'm so, kevin, I'm so sorry no i just wanted to say that because kevin goetz is when i go to germany they'll say <laughs> goetz or goetz so i said eh, we'll let alex have that <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I'm gonna, I, I, no, I, not at all. I was going I, I was going I, I to check it, and then I thought <laughs> I'll be fine. Assumptions. <laughs> it's always always a downfall. Um, okay. Well, look, have a have a have a great day, and I look forward to the next next question. Cheers. My pleasure. Take care. Bye.